Okay. Is there anyone who would like to invite the devil? Oh, the devil. Okay. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Go for it, Becca. Rama Chaloka Dipati Sampati Katanjaliya Iwaram Ayachata Santi Dasanta Parajaka Chatika Okay, we're getting into the heart of the retreat now. Beginning's over, and uh, there's something mysterious happening. People seem to be losing their hair. I don't know what's going on. Uh, <laughs> it's just part of the letting go process. Uh, I guess it happens naturally. There seems to be something in this corner of the room. I guess, does that mean Cecilia's next? Oh, <laughs> uh, well. We have a special running, you know, this, um, half price for the first woman. <laughs> yeah, just write me a note when you're ready. <laughs> okay, well, um, you know, when we give these talks, I, I really don't know what I'm going to say. So for the first period of time, I was encouraging people just to relax and settle in. Because uh, in many ways, uh, we just need to learn how to do that. Sometimes we just forget how to, how to have a bit of serenity in our lives. It's easy to do that. We don't get a whole lot of support for serenity out there. I mean, occasionally you might see Buddhist monks, you know, trying to give you a message. But, um, you know, um, it's easy to lose touch with the with, uh, sense of inner peace. And so just coming to a place like this and uh, just learning how to relax, just remembering how to relax. I'm sure we've all experienced times in the past where we have been very relaxed in nature or a feeling of uh, being one with nature. And those types of very simple experiences I think are, are very valuable. And often some of the really powerful uh, times 
that we've had, they haven't uh, necessarily been planned on. You know, it's not like we've been striving and, and then suddenly we have this feeling of being at peace in nature. But it just may happen to be that you know, sometime when we were younger and more innocent, you know, we sat down by a body of water or a stream and, and, um, and for whatever reason the mind kind of went in balance and uh, we didn't have a lot of burdens and, and could feel a sense of inner peace. And as we grow older, sometimes um, we lose touch with that simplicity of the heart. So there are certain um, there are certain things about our uh, sometimes younger days which are good to remember and retain. Not everything, by any means, <laughs> but sometimes certain things. I mean, even the Buddha, when, when he was striving hard for enlightenment, when he was uh, at, pretty much at the end of his rope, he had tried everything. He had, he, had, um, he had gone to the greatest spiritual teachers of his day, he had mastered what they had to teach, and that um, didn't bring him to the point of being able to let go of everything completely. Uh, he had tried uh, various um, types of uh, asceticism, for example, like there was a meditation, uh, not on the breath, but the meditation holding one's breath, right? And try that one for a while, yeah. And just, and he would hold his breath until, um, until he realized uh, there was still some oxygen coming in through his ears, right? So he'd block <laughs> his ears out. And then he'd hold his breath in. And, um, you know, finally he just kind of held it until he passed out and realized, well, well, that's probably not going to work. And uh, he would do things like um, try to be the, um, the one with nature type of ascetic where he would act like a wild deer like one of these deer, and he would run around naked, um, uh, probably yeah, hop around naked uh, like a deer and avoid people and, and uh, live very much uh, in solitude. Any time a person would come by, he would, uh, he would you know, be as shy as a deer, as a wild deer. But that didn't really seem to get him too far, and he would do... Uh, extreme fasting and he was once telling Ananda the story of you know when I was young you know striving for enlightenment while I was still a, a, a bodhisattva before I was enlightened and uh, you know there were times where I lived on um, just one of these little tiny fruits every two weeks and uh, he said kind of in jest and, and you may think that those little fruits were bigger in those days, <laughs> but they weren't. They were the same size as they are today. Uh, but you know, he reached the point of emaciation to the point where he could, you know, he try to um, he would he would try to touch his belly and he would grab his backbone, and uh, you know the the hair was just falling off of his body. Um, much like some of the people here, <laughs> and uh, and and at one point he was just so weak that you know he, while bathing he, he nearly drowned. Uh, but then 
you know, he had this memory of a time in his childhood where very innocently he was about six years old uh, got dragged along to one of these uh, royal functions that his father was performing a royal plowing ceremony which they still do today in Thailand and uh, probably a bit bored by the whole thing he went and sat under a rose apple tree and and without really know what, what was going on. He, he just went into this very deep state of samadhi, where his mind unified and literally became one with nature. And at the time, um, he just went into this very deep state and some of the other attendants, the nannies, etc., came and, and um, were all kind of a mixture of excited and worried and thought it was miraculous. But, you know, he, he came out of that state and wondered what all these people were doing, looking at him, and carried on. Didn't think much of it. But at this point, while he was striving for enlightenment, and he was, you know, he'd pretty much tried everything, every angle uh, that was common in those days. And then he remembered this time of, of just being one with nature. His mind, that's, that's what we call jhana, this deep state of samadhi, where the mind is actually unified. You can't see, hear, smell, taste, uh, touch. There's no sensation in the body. Uh, so you can stay in that state um, for quite a while. Usually, if you do go into that state, it's, it's not just a moment. It is quite a while. And he remembered that, and then it's like, yeah, maybe that's the way. Maybe that's the way to enlightenment. So even the Buddha, you know, had these uh, appreciation for a time of uh, peace and innocence uh, of his of his uh, youth. So that was the first 24 hours or so. Encourage people just to relax, simplify. But now we're into the heart of the retreat, so, as our manager says, nose to the grindstone. <laughs> no, I just kidding. Okay, no. <laughs> so now we're getting into, you know, once the mind starts to settle down a bit, um, It does give the opportunity to kind of focus in on more um, deeply held issues. You do something simple like that practice that we were doing of moving the awareness throughout the body this morning, and you might find that if the awareness settles in, in one place, you notice well, there's a bit of tension there. Maybe it's an area around the heart. You know, maybe it's the area in your solar plexus and the muscles in your solar plexus or some spot in your spine. And you just kind of just just keep the attention focused on that one spot you know, in a relaxed way, but just kind of allowing it to sink into that spot. And um, you can be surprised sometimes what it releases. 
be surprised sometimes how much tension we're carrying around with us without really knowing it. And uh, sometimes just kind of delving into one of those spots where it seems like there's a little tension, it's not quite relaxed, and you go in there and, and uh, whoosh, it can lead to a real sense of release. But it can also lead to a sense of um, releasing stuff from out of the closet uh, into consciousness. And like I say, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, you know, we may have, sometimes one day, you know, in the beginning of the retreat, we're getting more peaceful. And then as the retreat goes on, we're getting less peaceful, more stuff's coming up. And that's not necessarily a bad sign. It's just a sign that, hmm, okay, well, this, we're in a very safe environment. You know, this is the time that, to allow stuff like that to come up. Because when you're at home with your family and your work, you know, you're, you're expected to uh, function in a relatively... Uh, um, normal fashion, functional fashion. Uh, but here on a retreat, we have no expectation, so you can be as dysfunctional as you like. <laughs> as long as you do your yogi job <laughs> with enthusiasm and, and, uh, and passion. Do it with passion, not raga, but enthusiasm. And then uh, outside of that, you can be... Um, You kind of uh, allow yourself to fall apart in a in a wholesome way, in a in a safe way, right? It's a bit like with the the controlled demolitions. <laughs> they might have uh, huge buildings, and they don't just you know they don't just bomb it with jets. You know they. They have a nice controlled, you know, very systematic demolition, and all falls down very nicely in a one pile. Um, and then they cut it off and they build something else. And uh, so meditation retreats a bit like a controlled demolition. This is not a simile that the Buddha used. <laughs> you know, it's just... Like I said, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. <laughs> okay. I can't take any credit because there's just five khandhas operating here according to causes and conditions. <clears throat> well, there's a, there's a lot in life which isn't really known. And uh, there's a lot in life which we definitely don't know. You know, for example, what's going to happen after the retreat? We don't really know. I mean, you can sit here and plan, after the retreat I'm going to do this, and after the retreat I'm going to do that. And, but we don't really know if that's going to come true. You know, maybe by the end of the retreat you'll have attained high levels of awakening, and that will change everything. Or, 
maybe not. <laughs> but usually, whatever we plan, if you if you notice that, really pay attention to, you know, what we've planned, and then how things turn out. Quite often, it just doesn't turn out the way we plan. So then, what's the use of planning? Well, there's some use in planning, but there's also an obsessive quality to it. It it becomes excessive. And when you're on a meditation retreat, you know, there's not a whole lot you need to plan. Every day is pretty much the same on the retreat. So there's, there's not a whole lot of reason that we need to plan. And whatever, say, functional planning that we need to do to be responsible in life, you can pick that up, you know, at the end of the retreat. But even if we know that, still there may be something in our mind that's that's kind of spewing out future scenarios. And uh, the more refined and um, powerful the mind becomes, the more detailed the scenarios can become. God, you listen to You know, some people are sitting there in meditation looking very peaceful, and they're like <clears throat> planning a house that they're going to buy, and what color they're going to paint the walls, and you know, what color the curtains are going to be, and then... They don't, and they're not even married, and they think, what, what am I going to name my children? <laughs> so it's good to look. Now, why would the mind want to do that? Because a lot of it, if we look uh, objectively at it, it's not actually that useful. And it'd be much more peaceful and enjoyable just, enjoyable just to be able to be quiet, at peace, content, serene. I mean, why why plan for happiness in the future when we have everything we need to be happy right here? But that's a good question. So what would fuel some of that? One, insecurity, searching for security, looking for some kind of security. Because the reality is there's very little security in life. I mean, we don't know if we're going to live until after the retreat, no matter how much we plan. I remember the Buddha was on alms round once, alms round once. You know, being the Buddha, he could uh, read people's minds. He was on alms round once and he passed his Brahmin who was um, planning, 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 what's going to, you know, uh, the business and everything that's going to be happening, everything he's going to be doing for the next few months. And the Buddha says, he doesn't realize he's going to die in seven days. And, uh, you know, eventually that's kind of all of us that we can keep planning and planning, but we may not realize, you know, when our seven days is up. So something that is very valuable is looking at the feeling of being uncomfortable with not knowing what's going to happen. Even if theoretically we kind of know that, yeah, everything's uncertain, 
but still somehow it feels safer to create a future scenario in our own minds. And I notice in my own mind, you know, create a, a future scenario and then one factor will change. And then, oh, very, very quickly, recreate a whole new future scenario, <laughs> incorporating that factor. <laughs> um, but these days I don't do that so much anymore because uh, over, you know, over and over again I just realize, well, things don't turn out the way I planned, so um, I conserve my mental energy more instead of obsessively planning. But being at peace with the insecurity of the future is, is a way that we can learn how to be more in the present moment. So when, you, when you're you know, sitting in meditation you know, throughout the morning and throughout the afternoon and, and uh, you're looking at, well, what is it that's taking the mind away? What's fueling these thoughts? Why isn't concentration coming? Why isn't samadhi happening? Well, those are very valid questions. And then just look. Sometimes it's something like, well, I'm afraid to admit that the future is uncertain, so I keep planning. Right? Or sometimes there's all sorts of fears, you know, a little worry. It basically just comes down to fear. And then we look, well, what's behind these worries? What's behind it? Is it is a fear of discomfort, or a fear of uh, what other people might think of us? Fear of death. So delving into these types of uh, issues in our minds can be very beneficial because something like fear even if we're not consciously aware of it it can have a tremendous power in our lives to to push us you know to do this and do that and do this and, and then after a few decades we realize well why am i doing this anyways if we really look sometimes it's because of fear or, or other things, you know, trying to please someone else, trying to get someone else's approval. You know, how much, how hard have we worked sometimes in life just to try to get someone else's approval? So a meditation retreat is a good opportunity to try to, you know, look very deeply into our hearts and see, well, what is it that's motivating me in life? Try to get in touch with some of these very basic questions. You know, what do I want in life? How am I going to be happy? Hmm? Very que basic questions. And the questions that no one else can answer for us. You know, we have to figure it out for ourselves. And that's... Um, you know, one of the beautiful things about Buddhism is that it's not based on you know, someone 
preaching some dogma to you. It's it's based on self-understanding, understanding yourself, until it finally goes deep enough and you understand not-self. So there are a lot of things in life which we just don't know. We, we just don't know, you know, what's, what's the right thing for us to be doing. Right? What, dis, what decision should we make in life? A lot of times we just don't know. A lot of times it just does take trust. A lot of times it just comes back to, well, what are our good intentions in the present? What good intentions do we have in, pre in our present that we can take refuge in? And what is it that we can truly know? When it comes right down to it, what is it that we can truly know? Well, I can, I can know that I'm seeing and beyond that, like in terms of sight, I mean, I could say, well, I know that I'm seeing Amo, but even that might be wrong. You know, um, <coughs> someone else may perceive you differently. Someone else might look at you and say, no, that's not Amo. Or, you know, I could look at, I could look at an ordinary object and say, ah, yes, I know what that is. That's a bell. But really, you know, if you get right down to it, um, that's just a lot of projection of, of conceptual memory. Just a particular shape, uh, form, and... Um, you know, goes in through the sense doors and then is um, filed away in the, uh, you know, kind of goes from the desktop, it goes into uh, the documents folder and it searches for uh, the, the folder, which is the file, which is going to be closest to that and says, okay, well, that looks like um, other things in the past that I've called bells. So we call it a bell. And the mind works very quickly. Uh, but really, the only thing that we can really be certain of is, is that I'm seeing. Because when other people look at the exact same thing that I'm looking at, they may perceive it very, very differently. And it's not that anyone's right and anyone's wrong. When there's... Um, a crime, please go around, ask all the witnesses. It's not uncommon that everyone says something different of what actually happened, and everyone's telling the truth, attempting to tell the truth as they remember it. So memory is very inaccurate, and um, part of that is because at the time, every person is perceiving the situation differently. So in that way, literally, we're, we're living in different realities. So I can't even be sure if this is uh, a bell, but I can, I can at least be sure that I'm seeing. There is seeing happening. Now, what's, you know, what I make of that seeing, what I perceive it as, well, 
then already we're starting to get into realms of it's not sure. I mean, this was Ajahn Chah's favorite teaching, it's just not sure. My nah. It's not a sure thing. So, and I can, I can be sure that there's hearing going on, um, sometimes more sound, sometimes less sound, sometimes pleasant sound, sometimes unpleasant sound, but even the whole idea of what's pleasant and unpleasant already, and then we're getting into uh, um, culturally conditioned preferences and projections. So when you come right down to it, it's just, you know, there's seeing happening, and then there's hearing happening, and there may be physical sensations happening, some of which we label as pleasant, some of which we label as pain, but, but basically, you know, it's just physical sensation, and there's mental stuff happening, and there's smells happening. So. It, when it comes right down to it, how much in life can we really be certain of? We can be certain that a car just drove up, but maybe not. Maybe um, maybe it's just a diluted projection in my own mind. Uh, there's a famous teaching that the Buddha gave to um, Bahia, uh, which was a very timely teaching for him because very shortly after that he died. And uh, he had traveled for a long distance hearing that uh, there was a, a fully enlightened Buddha and he came to the Buddha. And the Buddha was on alms round. And he went up to the Buddha on alms round and said, please give me a teaching. And the Buddha says, um, it's not really the right time, place for it. Um, if you meet me back at the monastery, you know, that's the appropriate time. I'll be happy to talk to you then. Um, but he's, but three times he asked for a teaching, and in, in Indian culture, you know, if someone asks you three times, you can't refuse. You know, if he asks you once, that's sort of polite, and then you politely decline. If you ask the second time, it's a bit stronger, and then uh, um, you know the polite declining is over and you can accept if you want it, but if you if you ask a third time and decline, um, so Bahia had asked three times so the Buddha consented, okay, he gave him a teaching and it was just in the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, there's just the herd. In the in the demon, there's just the demon. <laughs> so the Buddha gave this teaching, which is when you when you come right down to it, if you want to doubt about what you can rely on, you know what what there is in life, say well. Most of it's minor, it's not sure. It comes right down to, in the scene, there's the scene. In hearing, there's the herd. 
What we smell, you know, there's smelling. What we taste, there's taste. And what we cognize with the body or feel with the body, then you know, there are these physical sensations. And what arises in the mind, there's mental energy. Beyond that, even things as very basic as color. Not sure. One person sees red, another person sees maroon, another person sees a bit of orange. And well, even if we both agree it's red, we don't really know if both of us are seeing the same thing. We've just learned to call it red. So who knows? It just comes down to very simple things like seeing, seeing, hearing. So is there anything beyond that which you kind of um, rely on to have a, a bit more direction in life? Well, there are some things which do seem to be generally good and useful. Take, for example, um, anger generally seems to be unbeneficial. Even if we have a lot of doubts about, you know, what type of path should we follow? Should we practice this or practice that? There's a lot of conflicting teachings out there. Well, it can come down to at least some very basic things that, you know, you figure, well, I don't think I can go wrong if I just uh, purify my heart of anger. It's hard to really think of any drawbacks of having less anger in one's life. Right. And so, uh, and so at least that's an area we could focus on. And it turns out that fear, insecurity around the future, and anger are very much related. Because when you have insecurity then, and fear, then there's an inclination to want to protect oneself and to lash out. And when one lashes out, then there is more reason to be afraid. <laughs> when, uh, when we say something in anger or act in anger, uh, you know, even, even think in anger, then, um, then generally, you know, we might create situations where uh, there is something to be afraid of, you know, because it comes back on us. So fear and insecurity and uh, anger tend to, to go together and uh, a mind state of anger and a mind state of metta or loving kindness are mutually incompatible. They can't exist at the same time. So there are different ways of overcoming fear, but that's a good one. Consciously developing 
sense of uh, loving kindness. Come back to that in a minute. Another way of, of looking at fear, you know, if you really get down to what's motivating you in life, both the positive things and the negative things, you know, if you if you find that some of your motivation is coming from fear, then if you can really isolate what it is, then that's helpful. You say, well, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of this. Well, why are we afraid of that? Well, I'm afraid because of that. Well, why am I afraid of that? Well, because of that. And then you know, if we keep looking and looking, you know, what, what's, what's behind? What's really underneath? What come down to some very basic motivational uh, energies? And if we look at it with courage and say, well, even if that happens, would I still be able to survive? Would I still be able to carry on? Would I still be able to even be happy? Usually the answer is yes, because human beings are very resilient. But also a good way to overcome fear generally is by developing these other qualities of mind, which uh, just help to over outbalance it, outweigh it. Now this quality of metta or loving kindness, you know what's special about uh, loving kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity, what's really special about these it's not just being kind when we feel like being kind, but being kind unconditionally, or at least working towards unconditionality as a guiding star. Because that's when it's really powerful. It's easy to be kind to the people we like and loving to the people we love. But uh, to be kind and loving to the people that we don't like or the, kind, or the people that don't like us or, or loving towards the, the people that you know, seem nasty or cruel or unjust, or, you know, then uh, that takes some real stretching of, of the mind's perception. And, and that's a good thing. Because it's easy to get kind of solidified, especially the older we get, mind kind of it's like slow setting concrete. Yeah, I guess solidified, and uh, it's good just to kind of blow it apart with some unconditional loving kindness. It's one of these controlled demolitions. It's a theme I'm working with. <laughs> And what's special about karuna, or compassion, is that 
um, beyond just being kind and loving to everyone that comes within our sphere of existence. Compassion is that which actually goes uh, into the life of another being, tunes into their suffering and empathizes with their suffering. And that uh, is very powerful. Because sometimes metta is more of a, a radiating positive energy. But uh, sometimes there are people who come around who are just kind of really nasty and you can't figure out why and it's like, well, it feels hard to have metta for them. But if you look deeply enough or inquired, then uh, sometimes they're that way because they have some pain going on in their life. And then it becomes very difficult to mm, stay angry at someone who, if you know that they're hurting in some way. And you know, there isn't anyone except for the fully enlightened Arhants and the Buddha who are not experiencing some suffering. Uh, so there's always something that we can empathize with in everyone. And that's a good quality to learn in life, how to you know, tune in to someone and and uh, you know feel, not just know where they're coming from, kind of feel where they're coming from. And um, it's a lot easier to be accepting and forgiving that way, non-reactive. Now the quality of mudita, again, is another one of the qualities which is very good for undermining fear and insecurity and and one of these qualities that well in a world which is there's not a whole lot you can be sure of you say well you're pretty sure that mudita is a good thing mudita is rejoicing in the success of other people other people's happiness and it's even more rare than compassion when things are going well for someone else, then empathizing with that, not just empathizing with their pain, but empathizing with their happiness and their joy, and feeling a sincere happiness in response to that. Right? It's the exact opposite of um, uh, jealousy. You know, things are going well, things are going well, you know, like, yeah, great, great, wonderful. That's one. It's really great that your meditation's going so well. You know, I'm sitting here, my knees ache, my mind's all over the place, but he's over there in Jhana. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy for him. So that's where the work comes, is actually bringing the sense of sincerity to that. 
we actually start to feel that. It's like, well, um, you know, in many ways, it's a lot easier than doing the work yourself. Right? Instead of going through all the work of uh, purifying your heart, you just you know, develop some happiness that someone else is purifying their heart. And say, well, it's working for her, it's working for him. And so, okay, great, isn't that wonderful? They're getting enlightened, and I'm getting happy because of it. And I didn't even have to do the work. That's called lazy man's way <laughs> to be happy. You just feed off someone else's good practice. Feed off someone else's good karma. And uh, develop an empathetic happiness. And it works. It's good. And there's... Uh, I don't think there's enough emphasis placed on, on that quality. And we talk a lot about loving kindness and compassion, but uh, mudita, you know, is, is a more rare quality. And it, and it is something which would, uh, you know, be really beneficial. You can, just, you can just see how beneficial it would be to have more of that in our family life, in our workplace, in our society. And then you've got the quality of equanimity. Now, equanimity is not to be confused with not caring or dis, mm, not being interested. Equanimity is based on a very deep understanding. And even when you've developed, say, loving-kindness to the point where you can include both the people we like and the people we dislike, and you're not making that those distinctions anymore, and you can really tune into other people's pain and other people's happiness. Still, beyond that, there's a lot in life that is just beyond our control. And we make care deeply about another person and yet still feel powerless to be able to help them or change their life in a significant way. And it's at these times that equanimity is a very powerful quality to have. It's based on understanding the law of karma and that People make their kama, and they receive the fruits of their kama. And learning how to be at peace with that. So traditionally, in Thailand, for example, There'd be uh, some very practical ways to go about developing qualities such as uh, loving-kindness. Now, one of the, the classic ways in the old forest tradition was to go out into the jungle where there's lots of wild animals and uh, look at any fear that might come up and then practice loving-kindness as an antidote to that. In Thailand, you'd have tigers and king cobras, you know, very large, kind of like um, 
carnivorous or territorial or aggressive beings. But um, up here in the North Woods, <laughs> what do we have? Just some cute little furry omnivorous beings. Um, still, might be if you really want to test yourself and develop meta, you go out and sit next to the compost pile. <laughs> you sit next to comp compost pile and, and, and you just uh, think, may the, may the pears be so happy. <laughs> oh, may they always have enough to eat. May they never be cold in the winter time. I love bears. And just radiate uh, loving kindness to the, to the bears, and then, and then when the, uh, it's easy when the bear's not there. <laughs> but <laughs> but if you sit there long enough, then you then you really get a chance to see. Okay, how strong's your loving kindness? Are you over your fear? Do you have any fear? If fear arises, then what? What are you afraid of? Afraid of death, or just afraid of pain? <laughs> afraid of the pain of being mauled, or you're afraid of what your wife will say if you don't come home after the retreat because you've been mauled to death? You know? Um, you know, look at it. Whoa, where's the fear coming from? You know, and these were uh, these were tried and true, <laughs> tried and true methods uh, that they used to go out there. And uh, because if you can overcome the very basic fears, then it leads to a lot of uh, spaciousness in your mind, at least a lot of lightness in your life. And you can't overcome fear just through trying to be macho. Go, oh, bring on the bears, oh, I'm not afraid. Right? You know, that's just BS. But you can only really overcome fear by understanding that it's usually just a shadow that we're afraid of. And you bring light to that, and it disappears. And it's replaced by a lot of trust. Just however things are going, however things are going to work out, I just trust they're going to work out just fine. And when fear starts to be replaced by trust, then all sorts of nice, magical things start to happen in life. You don't try to control the future so much by obsessively planning and allow things to be more spontaneous and, and things do start to happen more spontaneously. And even if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you just trust that everything's going to work out fine. 
And usually it does. And where we can really place our trust is in our good intentions. Our intentions to be kind, our intentions to be generous, our intentions to be patient, our intentions to be compassionate, our intentions to be peaceful and serene, our intentions to be wise, our intentions to help other people. These intentions then become a refuge. And we don't know what results exactly are going to manifest from them. Or when they're going to manifest. Because that's not really our business. But in the present moment, cultivating wholesome intentions, making much of wholesome intentions, strengthening wholesome intentions, delving into and taking refuge in our wholesome intentions. This is our business. This is what we can do. And this is what we can be pretty sure of. What's happening in the present. And that's enough. There's enough there for happiness. So I offer this for your reflection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.